Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to your claim lawyers. A no-win, no-fee, personal injury. Injury Claims Law Firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au Thorpe is coming in, gold and a world record! Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend! 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. Ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne, and he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello everybody and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by an Australian sporting great. Liz Ellis is the most capped Australian netballer in history. A captain, a tenacious defender who won three world championships and two Commonwealth Games gold medals for the Diamonds over the course of a highly successful 14-year professional career. A commentator and panellist, Liz is also an officer of the Order of Australia and a member of the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, while the Liz Ellis Diamond is awarded now to Australia's most outstanding netballer of the year. It's been a journey of ups and downs off the netball court as much as on. Liz, hello. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Windsor in Sydney's northwest, the 1970s, and you're growing up in a family of four. Can you set the scene for us? I had a pretty, uh, a really happy childhood, actually. It was my little sister and myself, so Kathleen and I, and mum and dad, and mum and dad, um, working class, incredible work ethic um, that I think my sister and I have both inherited from them. We um, both of us tend to never be able to say no to a job. <laughs> um, and we just lived in a little quarter acre block at Windsor and um, we idolised, you know, both mum and dad. And dad um, was a stock car driver when he was in his younger days. And mum had played a bit of netball and played reps locally. So um, we were just a really tight-knit family, travelled a lot in a little caravan and um, over the years did a few big trips. So my mum and dad took my sister and I out of school back in 1982 and we did a big trip around Australia, which is sort of one of the big memories that I have of my childhood. But, yeah, a really happy childhood, no screens, lots of bike riding and playing with neighbourhood kids and playing on the trampoline and shooting goals in the backyard and, yeah, just being urchins. So it's younger sister, Kath, mum, Margaret, and your dad, Ralph. Now, dad's stock cart career. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, dad, uh, dad had well and truly hung up the wheels by the time my sister and I came along. I think um, after they got married, mum put the foot down and said, no, you're not doing that anymore. But he used to build his own cars. He was a pretty handy bush mechanic. Um, his nickname was Wrecker and uh, he would tell us, you know, as we got older stories about 
Um, he used to build his cars that had like a, a bar around the bottom and I don't quite know how it worked, but he used to use it to get sort of underneath other cars and flip them over. And um, at one of his stock car reunions, one of his mates said to me, you know what, you play netball like your father drove cars. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I think that's a huge compliment. So I reckon there's a few goal shooters who'd say, yeah, she's a bit wrecker Ellis. Um, So, yeah, that was, uh, you know, Dad was an Australian stock car champion on a couple of occasions and used to race at Sydney Speedway. So he had quite the illustrious career. And my sister and I used to love looking through his his scrapbook. And funnily enough, I've got a little boy now who's nearly five and he's massively into the movie cars and their stock cars, of course. So... Um, you know, I got out dad's scrapbook the other day and he couldn't believe that Poppy Ralph was a race car driver. So that was pretty cool. It was a physical upbringing too, wasn't it? Trampolines, billy carts, you know, netball in the backyard. No, very physical. And my sister and I were always pretty active. And um, yeah, I like, we never, we, mum and dad, you know, they just, they couldn't afford computer games. And back then it was Pac-Mans and Donkey Kong and that sort of stuff. So we just never got them. So um, as a result, I'm a mean old mother to my kids and I don't I don't give them screens because I'm like, you know what, you can get out and have fun with a stick. And, you know, my sister and I used to have, were always able to amuse ourselves with a bit of water and a stick and a bit of mud. And, uh, you know, later on that became bikes and netballs and footballs and, yeah, really active, very happy childhood. Your mum would wonder, wouldn't she, where these feisty feminist daughters had come from? I know, but like she's, um, you know, she's quite responsible for it. So, you know, she was all like just little things. She would never, never let any inequality sort of, you know, go to waste if it could teach us a lesson. And, you know, I remember when we were little, we were, um, my sister and I went to the local Catholic school and mum used to take us to church every weekend and um, they used to have altar boys. And um, actually my mum's bringing me a cup of tea now, so she's... (laughs) The work of a mum is never done. Thanks, Marg. Um, and they had older boys and uh, there was no older girls. So mum took it upon herself to change that. And after some crusading and some letters to the local parish, then we all got admitted. So then my sister and I had no choice but to become altar girls. I used to just like it because I used to get to light the candles and play with fire. Um, so, yeah, so mum, you know, was very much, well, you know, and dad as well, whatever, um, you two can do whatever you want to do. But they were really... Um, really determined that we would get an education you know both of them left school um dad left school in year eight mum left school in year nine and and went to quite manual sort of jobs and dad worked really my dad was a really intelligent man but came from a very impoverished background um and had a pretty miserable childhood and so he was never able to sort of reach um his potential intellectually and worked in a a timber yard his, his whole life and um he and mum were very determined that my sister and I would uh, complete our education and that education was key. So both of us, um, it was very clear that we were going to finish school and head off to uni. The annual holiday was special, wasn't it? Mum and dad, they worked hard, they saved. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it actually taught me um, goal setting from a very early age. You know, I mentioned the big holiday holiday that we had. And part of that holiday was that mum um, had to go back to work for a couple of years and so my sister and I, had to become latchkey kids in the afternoon and get ourselves off the bus. And I was the eldest, so I was responsible for getting Kath and I off the bus into the house and and locking the doors. And we had a neighbour who'd come and check on us. So that just taught me the value of of goal setting that, you know, Kath and I had our role to play. We had to be good kids and get off the bus and 
look after ourselves and sit down and get ourselves a snack and then sit down and do our homework or keep ourselves amused in the house until mum got home an hour after we did. And the payoff for that was that we would get to go on this amazing holiday and get a year off school. So, um, and that continued all the way through our childhood, you know, that um, mum and dad showed us how you save, how you budget, um, how you don't spend money frivolously and how, as a result, you can get to do things. And, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of money, but what they had, they were very careful with. And as a result, we had a, you know, we had some really great experiences as kids. So you've talked about what your parents instilled in you. Was organisation one of those traits? Are you known as being an organised person, aren't you? And can you take us through some examples of how that organisation manifests itself? <laughs> oh, no. Well, funny, my dad um, was incredibly organised. He was, um, you know, when after he passed away, we were sort of dismantling his shed and my husband and I were just wondering at the fact that it was just amazing you know, every tool had its place and there was an, an outline drawn for where every tool went. And um, I just, my husband laughs at me now. I'm turning into my father. I look like him and I, I'm doing things like him. So I know where you're taking me and that is, I, I have to admit that my spice rack is arranged <laughs> alphabetically. Um, I, <laughs> I arrange my Tupperware in my pantry. It's all labelled and set up in certain spots. So um, I love to cook and I love being in the kitchen and that's where I'm creative. And as a result, um, everyone knows that when mum's in the kitchen, don't don't walk behind the bench, don't get in her way and for God's sake, put any spices or anything like that that you use back exactly where you got it from. Your first contact with the game you loved, who did you play for? Green Hills under eights, I think it was. And your mum played, but when you were old enough, she wasn't too keen for it, was she? Yeah, she didn't think I'd be very good. So, um, again, you know, it's interesting when you reflect back on the formative things that happen in your life. And, um, you know, the thing that one of the great things that netball has shown me is the the way um, that there are great women in communities who lead. And um, there was a woman at Windsor, her name was Sheila Ether, and she was a mum of five, really community-minded, didn't have a, like, you know, a fancy job or a job title or anything, but... I would say she was a hugely important leader within our community and she just rang mum one day and said, oh, listen, Marg, I'm putting together an under-8s team for Green Hills. Does Liz want to play? And Or Elizabeth, as I was known then, and mum said, no, nah, no, nah, I don't think she'd like it. She's a bit of a bookworm and <laughs> she likes her own company. I don't think that would be for her. And Sheila never won to be deterred, went away and then came back to mum, rang her back about a week later and said, listen, Marg, oh, you wouldn't believe it. I went to a conference today and did you know that 97% of or whatever the percentage was of kids who um, end up in homes as juvenile delinquents have never played team sport? And <laughs> as it happened in that week, I um, lit a fire in the house in my bedroom. So mum and dad were concerned that I was going to become a pyromaniac or some sort of criminal. So um, mum said, yep, radio, Liz can play on the proviso that she can stop when she wants to. So it took me 27 years to stop. But... I'm, you know, incredibly grateful to Sheila for, you know, not taking no for an answer to go away and find a different way to yes. And I think that's what good leaders do. They get what they want, but they don't force anyone to do it. And she was amazing. You know, there were so many of us young kids at Windsor who um, played the sport because she was persistent and and was a great organiser. Your mum didn't have great faith, but were you a natural talent or did it develop? Oh, ish. I was very enthusiastic and um, I wanted every second pass. So I was probably pretty good, but I just didn't understand the nuances of the game. I just wanted to ball hog the whole time. And I got selected in the under-11s team for Hawkesbury and then um, I thought I was pretty good. And then the following year I didn't get selected and that was um, a bit devastating, but it taught me that 
Um, and it taught me such a valuable lesson. Like even when I was a captain of the Diamonds, I used to turn up to selections nervous and that's a really good thing. Um, so, yeah, it took me a little while to sort of get on my arms and legs into gear. But I I loved netball from the moment I stepped on court. Loved it. Loved everything about it. Loved the challenge. Loved um, the teamwork aspect. Loved being with my friends. Um, you know, it was just, yeah, it was love at first sight and or love at first centre pass. <laughs> and, um, you know, I... I often wonder what my life would have been like if if Sheila hadn't have been so um, persistent because I just loved it. Yeah, but I wasn't I wasn't I was good but not great. There were certainly kids who were better, other girls who were better players than me, but I probably had a bit more of a, a a stronger work ethic. But you know that doesn't really get proven until you're a little bit older. Was there something to aim for, Liz? National team wise, what was the coverage like and the attention given to netball back then? No, nothing. So. Um, I don't recall seeing netball on television until I was about 19. Um, And uh, I remember seeing a a news clip back in 1987, and I remember the date simply because it was, I know know it was a World Cup year, and it was just a little news clip that Keely Devery, who is now my boss at Channel 9 actually, um, she had um, injured her knee at the World Cup in, um, in England. And that was it. That was all you saw. You saw nothing. And... So as a, as a result, when I was a little kid, I didn't grow up dreaming of being a netball player. I grew up dreaming of being a rugby league player because that's what we saw on television. And, um, you know, I'd asked to play rugby league and there was no girls comp, so I just, oh, I'll keep playing netball. And so it was just never a thing. It was never a thing for a young girl to, to dream about playing sport professionally. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Next, Liz Ellis takes her talents to Canberra. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're with netball legend Liz Ellis. Well, Liz, by the time you finished school, you had two loves, didn't you? Netball and law. So the AIS was calling, but was the law degree doing the same? But the law degree was happening at the same time. Yes. As I mentioned earlier, mum and dad really determined um, that we would go to university. And whilst they didn't push us, they sort of never... Um, encourage us to think about anything else actually other than heading off to uni. So, you know, I had finished year 12 and I thought, right, I'd like to um, go to law school and I knew nothing really about it. There was no, I mean, no one in my family had ever been to university before, let alone practice law. I just thought it sounded a bit glamorous and I got the marks to do it. So I finished, I, I had actually got an invitation to apply for the AIS at the um, end of year 11, start of year 12. And, um, you know, I talked it through with mum and dad and they were like, you know what, you just can't do it. You just need to finish year 12 here with your family so you can really be focused on your HSC and it was such a good decision. So I did that and I finished with really good marks. Um, I ended up, you know, in the top couple of percent of the state and um, then I could just choose what I wanted to do and I thought, right, I so I applied for an arts law degree at um, ANU in Canberra and I got accepted for that and I'd been accepted for a scholarship at the AIS. So that first year was really difficult. I was living away from home. Um, well, I say it was difficult. Now that I'm a grown-up and I've got kids of mine, I'm like, oh, my God, that would have been so good, you know, living away from home. Someone <laughs> does your cooking. Someone does your cleaning. 
uh, and you just all you have to do is worry about training and studying. Um, but it took me a good year to sort of get adjusted to it, and I bit off more than I could chew at the start. So I, after my first year of full time study and um, my full scholarship at the AIS, I just dropped back to part time study and finished off my second year there. But I really did learn the value of of hard work in terms of um, my netball career, and it all come very easy to that point. I've been very good at juniors. And whilst I'd done the work, I hadn't really pushed myself and it wasn't until um, I got um, to the AIS that I realised just how much work it would take for me to get from where I was to where I wanted to be. And it was was during my first year, you know, the 1991 World Cup was on, which um, it was the first time I'd ever been to a live netball game. You know, I've been to the footy with my dad and um, but I'd never been to a live netball game and I went to watch the semi-final between Australia and Jamaica at the Entertainment Centre in Sydney and there were 10,000 screaming fans. And then the next day we went to the Australian-New Zealand final and it opened my eyes to what was available to me if I did the hard yakka. So um, it really made me put my um, head down and my bum up and um, really work hard to, to get where I wanted to get to. And at the same time, I was sort of um, a couple of years into my law degree. Earlier, you spoke about how important education was to your parents. So, Liz, how did they react to you going back to part-time study? Oh, they're okay, but they were very concerned that I didn't um, put it on hold because they felt that if that happened, then um, I'd never go back to it. So, you know, they and mum and dad hadn't been to university, so they they weren't they didn't have a great deal of knowledge about how the system works. But they were very concerned that I um. That, that I kept studying something, but they were also they could also see how tired I was and how much stress I was putting myself under. So um, it's one thing to want your kid to do something; it's another thing to make sure that you care about them first and foremost, which mum and dad always did. So um, you know they they were they were pretty happy with that as long as I kept going. They didn't particularly care if it took me a couple of years longer to get my degree, as long as I kept working towards it. You made your debut for the Australian netball team, July 93 against Wales. I think you're just 20 years of age. What do you remember of the occasion, Liz? I was terrified, um, but also really um, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the debut of my dreams. You know, we're, um, we're actually in Holland of all places. Now, I know you're scratching your head because um, the Netherlands is not a big netball playing nation. <laughs> Um, but back then we used to play in something called the World Games, which was like the Olympics for non-Olympic sports and it had the most amazing sports in it. There was like um, sports acrobatics and dancing and bodybuilding and casting, you know, fishing casting yep. and all sorts of crazy, crazy things and we were one of them. So um, I was selected in the bigger squad of 12 back then. Um, that was unusual but Joyce Brown wanted it so I went over and I made my debut against Wales in the first game of the tournament in front of about eight people and, you know, no parents, no family, no nothing. And it was probably a good thing because the first four times I got the ball, you know, um, I threw the ball back to the Welsh goal shooter who would have been lucky to be five foot six, but I was so nervous <laughs> I got the dropsies and couldn't pass and Joyce Brown at quarter time walked up to me and anyone who knows Joyce Brown, she's terrifying in full flight and um, she was like, Elizabeth! We're wearing gold, not red. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so I made my, I played one test and I thought that's it. I'm never going to play again. I actually didn't play for the rest of that tournament. So it wasn't the most auspicious beginning, but hey, I did it. Indeed. you got to start somewhere. But domestically though, you really started to make a name for yourself at, at the Swifts. Now we were talking about netball and law. Now around this time with the Sydney Swifts as a professional, you, you, were, you were doubling as a solicitor, but you, you didn't have a choice because... The game just didn't pay, did it? 
No, and um, I found an old contract the other day. So when I first started playing for the Swifts, you know, I graduated as as a solicitor, I think, back in 1996 or 97. And um, and in 97... um, the I forget what it was the National League whatever the you know became this big Commonwealth Bank trophy started and we the Swifts were formed and um we got paid nothing and then a few years later I found from like early 2000s I found a contract the other day and I got paid two thousand dollars a year and I got two pairs of shoes and eight rolls of strapping tape and that was in our (laughs) contract right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I had no choice. Yeah. So I was practicing. Um, I finished my degree. I'd moved from the AIS. When I left the AIS, I moved my studies from the ANU up to Macquarie University. Um, and I finished my degree at Macquarie. And then I went to the College of Law, got admitted to the Supreme Court as a solicitor and practiced for about four years with Cause Chambers Westgarth. So they're a, a sort of a mid-tier firm in um, the CBD in Sydney. And I practiced in um, property and infrastructure. I actually liked being involved in something where at the end of all your drafting, something got built. So that um, that was something that I enjoyed doing. But I did get to the point after a couple of years, I really it started to take it out of me um, trying to, I thought I could be like Superwoman. I thought I could make partner of a law firm and yeah. in the Australian netball team. Turns out the Venn diagram of those two things, there's no overlap. You can't do it. So, um, yeah, it was pretty tough. But, you know, I, I met some really good people there and I had some terrific experiences. And, um, you know, certainly um, getting my law degree um, and, you know, doing finishing off that university component and then practising as a solicitor, it's, it's absolutely invaluable. Oh, I can't imagine the juggle and, and how tough it was at, at certain periods there in your life as you were coming through. But uh, tell me to bugger off here, Liz, but what did you earn in your last year as a netballer? You know, and, and I'm keen on your thoughts on where the game, professional game of netball might be at in this regard. Yeah, right. Oh, the professional game of netball is so much better. So in my last year, what was that, 2007, mm. I would have earned about 15 grand from for playing for the Swifts. And I used to get paid... 10 grand for being the captain of the diamonds. Right. And we got about 15 or 20,000 dollars from the government through um, the AIS through the Australian Sports Commission through the athlete support. So my maths is a bit how you're going. What's that? 50 grand? Yeah, but that that's come even in your career, you know, that that had come away anyway, hadn't it? Oh, that had come a long way. And um, you know, when I th- when I think back to where we started to where I ended up, um, it's extraordinary to think that that's what I was earning. But um, I also, the, the great thing about it was that I was able to leverage my career and, and I, I had some really good sponsors and I'd started up some netball clinics, some netball coaching clinics, and that became a, a reasonably large business. I had a big turnover. You know, I used to coach two or 3,000 kids a year depending on what the netball schedule was like and, and through the school holidays. So um, I don't begrudge it for a second. You know, it had come a long way and... Mm. Um, you know, it it was terrific to have that sort of support from the government. And, you know, we had to fight to get to where we got to. And, you know, we formed the Australian Netball Players Association. We affiliated with the AWU, the Australian Workers Union. So we had to take some risks there. That was a pretty unpopular move, but we sort of needed to have some professional advice. So I always had my eyes firmly set on the goal that eventually netball would be professional, but I understood it wouldn't be professional for me. But that we had to set it up for the generations to come because, um, you know, I always felt that an administrator was never going to wake up one morning and go, ah, I might pay the players a fair wage. 
uh, we had to really pressure them. So that took some doing. But yeah, that to, in, in my career, things had come a long way. And then from since I've retired to now, 14 years later, it's it's like an, in another galaxy, which is terrific. Yeah, well, it's a part of your legacy you should be proud of, absolutely, and, and plenty others alongside you as well. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you, of course, by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can jump online to visit them at tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, we're going to talk Diamonds Domination with Liz Ellis. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with the most capped international player in Australian netball, Liz Ellis. Well, Liz, three World Championship gold medals, two Commonwealth Games gold medals, four Commonwealth Bank trophies with the Swifts. What level of satisfaction comes now with a trophy cabinet as stocked as this? (laughs) Oh, um... It's sort of it's something that I reflect on occasionally. It feels like a long time ago. You know, since I retired, I've had um, two kids. We've had a, a huge change in our lifestyle. My husband and I have moved to a farm in regional New South Wales. So I sort of have different priorities. But when I I look back, I as I as the further away from the, your career that you get, you're able to be a bit more objective about what you achieved. And initially, for the first few years, I just couldn't. I didn't understand it. But now. You know, when I, I get to sort of look at my career, I guess, in the context of the players that have come since and what has happened since, I feel really fortunate for a couple of reasons. One is that um, I played in a really good era and the thing that I take away from my career that's most valuable to me is not the trophies or the trophy cabinet, it's the friends that I made and particularly the women who I played with in the Sydney Swifts. You know, they're my best friends. It's it's well documented that Kath Cox and I are inseparable um, <laughs> and we're, we're a bit of bad news when we're with each other. But that whole group of women, you know, Bryony Akel, who now coaches the Swifts, the New South Wales Swifts, uh, Megan Anderson, who's now coached the Queensland Firebirds, uh, Selena Gilson and Reagan Jackson, the, uh, Alison Broadbent. There's all these terrific women who... Are our, we're still really close. And, um, you know, when COVID hit, we started up a little, like everyone else, we started up a little Zoom thing on Sundays and um, just sat there and used to fill up a glass of wine and just laugh for two hours. So um, I look at my trophy cabinet and I don't really have a trophy cabinet. I t- tend to keep all my medals in a bag. And um, But when I think about, I guess, my achievements, I'm proud of them. I'm, it's a, I guess, the long, I'm proud of the longevity of my career, of the fact that uh, I had some injury issues late in my career and I overcame them to come back. Um, and I'm proud of the fact that I was able to, to um, work my way into being, you know, captain of the Swifts, captain of the Diamonds and still walk away and be really close to the women um, who I played with. And I'm proud of where netball is and I feel like not just me but there's a whole lot of players who worked hard to lay that foundation. So I feel like we can probably all look back at our careers and be really happy with what we achieved and, and how it rolled on to what it is now. One of your former coaches, Norma Plummer, described you as the most determined player she'd ever coached. And I, I was keen to ask you how much of it was about, I guess, embracing the role of goalkeeper, you know, rolling the sleeves up, sharpening the elbows a bit, so to speak, and just making it bloody tough for your rivals. Uh, that's what it was all about. I was looking at a piece of um, footage the other day. Someone posted the last minute of the 1999 World Cup final on um, on social and 
I, I watched it and um, I was just laughing and my husband and I were watching it. It's that one where Cheryl McMahon shoots the goal in the dying seconds. Yep. But prior to that, I'd had a massive tussle with this New Zealand goal shooter and Matthew goes to me, you were such a pest. I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I first played goalkeeper, I first got put into goalkeeper in my teens and I bloody hated it because it wasn't the glory position of goal shooter and I wanted to be a goal shooter but the problem was I couldn't shoot which is sort of a minor technical glitch (laughs) um so I got put into goalkeeper and I hated it but um you know as I you know I I was good at it so I kept getting put there and I sort of wanted to um make it a bit more glamorous than it was you know I, I used to run as I said I used to run netball coaching clinics and you'd say to the kids okay line up in your positions goal shooter to goalkeeper and you know um you get to the goalkeeper and there'd be three little girls standing there like looking a bit morose. I was like, right, we've got to make goalkeeper a bit more trendy. So, you know, I used to fly out for these intercepts and think, God, I hope I hope more little girls want to play goalkeeper. So I did my best to sort of, you know, market the goalkeeper position. And I used to say to them, okay, so if you're lining up, um, I want the goal shooters here. Yeah, goal shooters and goal attacks, all the girls who like to have a ribbon in their hair. Uh, if you play centre or wing attack, if you're really bossy, stand in the middle and down the other end, if you're really smart, go down to the defender's end. So, you know, it was it was a bit pathetic, but I did my best. So, yeah, and, you know, um, I think to play goalkeeper, you've got to just be prepared to take the hits for 57 minutes and wear someone down. And that's, you know, what I used to have to do, playing against someone like Irene van Dyke, who was an unbelievable athlete. I couldn't, I couldn't contest one-on-one with her from the get-go. I really had to wear her down and just be an angry ant until the very end of the game. And that's when the mistakes would come when I made her tired. So... Um, that's the nature of the position and it actually quite suits my personality. I was going to ask you about Irene. Now, I would assume she's your toughest opponent, but looking at your, your I guess, your stature, there's a 10-centimetre difference between the two of you as well. So you were you were playing short, so to speak, when you were up against her and, and how you might have gone about just wearing her down, like you say. Yeah, I was playing very short. And the first time I played against her, I was like, this is a disaster. I was 22 and she was the same age but she's not going to go away. We're going to be playing against each other for the next decade. And I was right. But, you know, and from when I played against her, she had it at me for height. But then when she, that was when she was playing South Africa. And then she moved to New Zealand and discovered the gym. And then she was got bigger and stronger than me as well. So I had to be a bit smart when I played against her. I had to really work hard on my positioning, on trying to get her out of the circle and keep her out of the circle, keep her away from the post. She was a phenomenal opponent. And I, I, you know, I used to think when I played against her that if I kept her under 40 goals a game, I'd had a good game and no other goal shooter would I concede, be prepared to concede 40 goals against. So she was phenomenal and she was a player who, like any great player in any sport, she was she had such longevity because she didn't just keep doing the same thing. She changed her game up year on year and got better and added things and, um, you know, she was a terrific challenge. And I, I absolutely credit her with making me the player that I became because I knew that I had to be so much better just to compete against her. She's amazing. And we're, we're, we're quite good friends now, which is lovely. Liz, October 2005, you're 32. You've had a magnificent career and you've done a lot of winning in that career, but you blow out your knee playing against New Zealand in Auckland and you obviously require a full knee reconstruction. Now, everyone said you'd retire or they assumed you'd retire, you know, long successful career in the kit bag, but... Why didn't you? I wanted to go out on my own terms and we've already talked about what a determined pest I am and I wasn't prepared to say to have that to have my retirement dictated to me. So 
Um, you know, I got, I got a few phone calls from people saying it's okay to say that's it, that's enough. You've you've achieved everything you wanted to achieve, and I thought mm, I'm I've never been I've never made a career on that's okay, that's enough. I've always wanted to do things on my own terms and in my own way, and. So it took some soul searching because, as you say, I was 32. I was, I was getting long in the tooth. I had two, but I had two tournaments that I wanted to play at. One was the 2006 Commonwealth Games and one was the 2007 World Cup. And even though I'd, I'd been named Australian captain, I hadn't captained the team to a major tournament and I was desperate to do that. So, unfortunately, the nature of the injury was October. The Commonwealth Games were in March. There simply wasn't enough time to get back on court Um so I had to step down from the team for that. And that was really difficult because Netball Australia didn't have the focus on welfare that it has now. And I was essentially just wiped because the assumption was that I'd retire and why put any resources into me? So I had to really go and do it all myself and get my own team together. And, um, you know, I was really helped by the Swiss physio at the time, Sean Mungovan. He was terrific and he understood. We're great friends. And he understood what I wanted to achieve and, um, I had terrific support from my husband. He was like, you know, the the time that you'd put aside for getting ready for the Commonwealth Games, let's just rehab. So, um, you know, I had great, terrific support from my family, from my friends, from my colleagues and my close colleagues. And I just thought, right, I want to get back. And even if I don't make it back into the Australian team, I wanted to get back to playing. And then if I wanted to retire, I wanted to do it when I wanted to do it. And a fair bit of ego in that, but I felt that, um, I'd earned that right to at least have a crack. Indeed. You mentioned the Commonwealth Games, but the other event was, of course, the World Championships in Auckland. So you decided ahead of time that that 2007 World Champs was going to be your swan song at the age of 34, but you didn't really tell anyone, did you, Liz? <laughs> no, it was a secret. So just to backtrack a bit, I missed the Com Games, but I didn't miss a single game with the Swift. So 2006, I got back on court. Uh, and made my way back into the Australian team. So things were going pretty well. Mm. Um, and I got named actually um, MVP in that year. And then I looked forward to 2007 and I, I had sort of thought about it was probably time to go. And as I was over Christmas, I, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'll be 34 this year. Um, this is enough. I need to go and spend some time with my husband and my family. And, you know, we, we had talked about maybe starting a family at some point. And so I thought, yep, this, this is it. I'm gonna, going to retire. So I made that decision early. But I also made the decision that I wasn't going to tell anyone. So the reason, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, but the main one being that uh, winning a World Cup is hard enough without the overlay of pressure that you're farewelling your captain or farewelling, you know, a senior player. And um, both Kath Harvey and Vicky Wilson had announced their retirements in the lead into the last two World Cups, and both of them spent the last quarter of the final against New Zealand on the bench. Mm. And um, I don't know if that was because of the pressure or, or whatever, but I just thought, right, I'm just going to take that away and put it, park it to the side. So I know that I'm retiring. My husband and I can get on with planning on what we want to do with our lives, but I didn't want to tell anyone. So I told my immediate family and then my, we sort of felt that I needed to tell my agent so, so that she knew. And, um, and I thought, right, I can't keep a secret from Coxie. I've got to tell Coxie. So I took her out to lunch and um, I, bought her a bottle of, uh, I bought a bottle of champagne and first drink I said, uh, I'm not playing that ball next year. And she said, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. And there was this big hoo-ha because it, um, there was a new trans-Tasman competition. Everyone just assumed that I would play 
I said, no, I'm not. So we had this big discussion that almost turned into an argument. And um, she she rang my husband. She went to the toilet and I didn't realise she rang my husband and he was in meetings all day. And he, she left a message on his phone. Matthew, I can't believe you're letting Liz retire. Like as if he has a say in anything that I do. You're letting Liz retire. And that was the first message. And then the second message was a couple of hours later after a bit more champagne and it was like, Matthew, I can't believe you're letting Liz retire. And then at 4 o'clock there was a message that he got and it was, it's like the five stages of grief isn't it (laughs) she'd gone through it all you know she'd gone from anger to uh sadness and then through to resignation and acceptance so um yeah so but it was i was i'm still really pleased with the decision that i made and and um you know nobody knew and it just meant that there wasn't that pressure and when we won at the end it wasn't about me and my last game it allowed the celebrations to be about the team and that was really important that is true but for you personally, beating New Zealand in New Zealand to, to win the title, I can't imagine, emotional, um, overwhelming, what was it like? Everything, incredible. And I see photos from that now. And so I had to do something recently and someone picked out a photo that was taken of me after the game and I've got my hands on my head and I'm looking to the heavens and I was so rich because we were so fit for that World Cup. And I had this, I was crying and someone said, was this after a loss? <laughs> I was actually, it was after my last game because <laughs> I was so happy uh, happy to be finished, happy to have won, to be able to finish on my terms. You know, everything that I'd been through in the last two years just flooded into my head about, oh, my God. You know, and it was on the same court that I had done my knee. So we won that World Cup, same court, and I was um, down the same end of the court for the final whistle as when I had done my knees two years previously, and it was almost two years to the day. So Jeez. it was such an emotional finish. Um, my family were in the crowd, my mum, my dad. Um, my sister, my husband, it was unbelievable. It was just such a, a massive moment. And when you watch your back, you can see Cox is the only one that knows and the whistle goes and she makes an absolute beeline for me and nearly kills people and we just cling to each other. So, yeah, I was um, ecstatic, emotional. And I and the longer I'm retired, the more I am grateful for being able to finish on those terms because I see people not being able to retire as they want. I, I didn't realise how unusual it is and... I've not stepped onto a netball court since to play. That was the last game that I ever played. We're talking to netball icon Liz Ellis on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, Liz, as we know, was incredibly strong-willed on court, but it would be a trait that would serve her well when it came to starting her own family. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And Liz Ellis has been our guest today. Liz, you've mentioned him or referenced him a few times in our chat, but your husband, Matthew Stocks, how did you meet? Oh, um, we were both coaching actually at the University of New England in Armadale um, back in well, nineteen ninety three, I think it was. So uh, last century, um, he was coaching. So they used to have these junior sports camps for kids in the school holidays, and he was coaching at the rugby camp, and I was coaching at the netball camp. And um, we were we used to patrol at night to try and keep the kids away from each other, and. <laughs> 
<laughs> but can't can't beat them. Join them. So, <laughs> there we go. so um, we met, and uh, yeah, we've been dating. Oh my god, we dated for a hundred years, and then we got married. So we've been together for oh, nearly thirty years. It makes me feel so old saying that. But you know, I've travelled a lot, so it only feels like a few months still. Yeah. Did did this is a, probably a difficult question to answer? But did you always want kids? Was that the general feel? No. Now, and if you spoke to any of my teammates, I still think it's funny that I wrote a book about fertility and infertility because I was always like, nah, I'm not having kids. But it used to be a bit of a protection mechanism because uh, as the moment you get married, people start, when are you having kids? When are you having kids? And at the time, I was really focused on netball. Matthew had finished playing rugby, but he was focused on his career. He was, you know, he had equity in, in a company and that they were trying to sort of build that up to be something spectacular and sell it, which they eventually did. But it just wasn't in our thoughts. So it just becomes a throwaway line. No, we're not having kids. When we were like, we've got such a good life, we can travel and go out and do what we want to do. And um, after I'd finished playing netball, we sort of had it in mind that that's something that we wanted to do. But um, we wanted to travel. So we finished. I finished playing and we took some really terrific trips. We went to South America and, um, and we travelled through um, Europe and the UK and, and the United States and um, we're actually in Barcelona one night. We'd had probably a few too many sangrias and, and we decided to buy a farm um, up in the north coast um, of New South Wales. And we're like, oh, we probably need some free labour. Probably should have kids. And that, it was just a bit, <laughs> bit of a throwaway line. But it, well, then we're both like, actually, we probably should try. And I was 37 or 38 at the time. So um, we thought, oh, we'll give it a try. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Mm. And um, on really quickly, actually, within a couple of four weeks or six weeks from deciding, we were pregnant with our first child with Evelyn and um, we had her and we were like, oh, this having kids caper, it's pretty easy, isn't it? And, you know, my obstetrician in a, a six-week appointment after Evelyn was born said, oh, well, you're getting old, so you want to get back on the horse. We're like, yeah, 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 we'll have another kid. And that's when we discovered that perhaps we might have left things a little bit too late. So we went through... Um, yeah, five years of infertility treatment. Mm, and several rounds of IVF, of course, and, and unbelievably three miscarriages. I think you uh, heard you say you had a heartbeat for one agenda. And, and this is real grief, isn't it? I mean, this is heartbreak. It, and I imagine at the time, and maybe even now, so tell me to pull up, I imagine pretty hard to talk about. Uh, it is, but um, I actually want to talk about it I, because miscarriage and things like this are things that we don't talk about enough. And miscarriages are really tough as you say I had three and for the third one we had seen a heartbeat and um, when we found out that we'd miscarried that baby that um, you know we asked for um, a biopsy to be done to see if there was any issues and um, there wasn't anything that you could do anything about it was simply um, old eggs and um, so the baby um, had some terrible congenital um, issues and my body had essentially just done an audit and said yeah no this one probably shouldn't um, make it all the way through. But, you know, I went through, you know, we spoke before about the stages of grief. I absolutely went through all the stages of grief, particularly with that last miscarriage because we had seen the heartbeat and I I had started to allow for myself to hope. You know, when we had the first miscarriage, I was like, okay, well, that's okay. We fell pregnant really quickly. It'll be okay. And then you have the second miscarriage. And the second miscarriage was um, I was on um, fertility drugs and I thought, okay, that's okay. Well, we'll, We'll go to IVF and then, it was just so hard to come up with embryos because I wasn't producing many eggs. So, and then we finally got this one and um, it, it was just, yeah, it was really heartbreaking. And I remember just crying myself to sleep one night and Matthew just said to me, you know, 
you've got to stop beating yourself up because I was like, why did we wait this long? Why don't we store some embryos? Why don't mm. we do, you know, the whole IVF thing 10 years ago when we first met? It wasn't like I was waiting for the right partner to come along. I'd, we'd been together since I was 19. So, um, and I was really beating myself up and he just said, you know, you had a bit on. We made our decisions. We've got a little girl and we thought, right, well, from that conversation we felt um, we're focusing so hard on a baby that we don't have. We're losing focus on the on the daughter that we do have. So we thought, right, we'll just, this is ridiculous. We're spending money. We're expending a huge amount of emotional energy and, um, you know, let's just quit it. And we did. <laughs> and about two months later we had a date night and, um, and lo and behold, uh, young Austin came along nine months later and the old-fashioned way and that's pretty much his personality. He does what he wants when he wants. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was incredibly difficult and, you know, I sat down, um, I was cleaning up my office actually just after Austin was born and I thought, I had all these papers and I thought, um, I actually have acquired so much knowledge and information through the course of these five years. Um, it would be a shame to just put it all in the recycling bin. Yeah. So I, I rang my agent and I said, I, I want to write a book about infertility. And she was like, oh, is that a good idea? I said, yeah, yeah, it'd be fine. I know lots. And I, you don't think. But, of course, if you're going to write something about a medical thing, you've actually got to know what you're talking about and get it right. Which So I feel like I wrote a book called If at First You Don't Conceive, which is um, a, a really deep dive into fertility treatments. But it's like I want it to for someone to pick it up and feel like their best girlfriend is taking them through this process and, you know, right from going to the GP the first time to if you have to face the fact that you may not ever have a baby. So, um, you know, it was a labour of love. It took me months and, but, um, you know, I've, I've had lots of feedback from people that it's been so helpful for them and, you know, it allowed me to make jokes about penises and vaginas and things like that, which is right up my alley. The real motivation, yeah. But yeah, I, totally. I, I, I was going to ask you about the feedback, but I imagine really helpful for you too because I think, am I right in saying you were diagnosed with secondary infertility and just the, the isolating aspect of it all, it must have helped even years later to sit down and, and put pen to paper to produce something like that. Yeah, it did. It was incredibly cathartic and it helped me identify the issues around grieving around miscarriage. So the thing, as I was writing the book, it occurred to me that the thing that that is hard when you're going through a miscarriage is that there's no language for it, right? Because you're not grieving a person mm. who's been with you for years. You're grieving an embryo and it's difficult and people don't want to talk about it. And it's hard to open up a conversation. How are you going? Great. Yeah, I'm in the middle of an IVF um, program at the moment, right? So there's not, and then there's the language around the grief that you experience when you have your embryo transfer and it doesn't take. So then you're actually grieving something that never really uh, got off the ground in the first place. So there's all this grief. It's lonely because you don't want to burden people with it, but you also don't want to say, I'm going through IVF. And then every time you see that person again, they're asking you, how are you going? Where are you up to? So, yeah, it's lonely, but I, I sort of, you're right. It helped me process all of those. Um, all of those emotions and start to kickstart the conversation about, um, you know, about how lonely and difficult it is. And now it's terrific to see there's, you know, netball players, you know, Chelsea Pittman um, recently um, was involved in an article from the Thunderbirds and talking about uh, her battles with fertility and miscarriage while she's still trying to play. And that's probably the next frontier for women's sport is that as sport becomes more and more professional, then of course these women want to extend their careers and, but you're extending your career through your fer fer most fertile window. And I know that fertility isn't something that's particularly sexy in the sports pages, but it's actually something that 
these sporting organisations need to educate their athletes about so that they can make informed choices about how long they play for or how they try and extend their fertility window through things like um, IVF and egg storage and egg harvesting and that sort of thing. Well, Liz Ellis, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk today. I mean, what a competitor you were on the quarter. You gave it your everything. And the list of honours during and after your netball career have franked a wonderful journey. Enjoy the family, the precious time with Matt, Evelyn and, and little Austin. Well done on all you achieved and thanks for joining us. Thank you. It all sounds very glamorous, but I've actually, once I've finished this interview, I've got to go and help clean the shed. <laughs> I wish you well with that. And thank you out there for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Jump online to findtobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91